evening over to chapter number 3, Exodus chapter number 3. We have been for some time now, been addressing the issue of uh, Moses and uh, how the Lord has worked in his life to bring about uh, the man that he wants to use to deliver the Israelites out of the bondage of Egypt. One of the great Jewish history stories in the story of history that um, probably, um, unless it would be Abraham, there's probably no person in uh, Judaism that has greater respect and love for than the man Moses. And uh, the more you read of him, the more you can appreciate that. Uh, Without a doubt, Moses was a great man, and we've made the point again and again, and it's not uh, too much to emphasize more so than what we've done, is that there are few people who God spoke to directly uh, like Moses. In fact, I think you could say there is no man to whom God spoke as frequently and directly as he did to Moses. And as I've told you, the book of Numbers and the book of Leviticus uh, both repeatedly tell us in the Lord, and that capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, mean Jehovah God, spoke to Moses. And then as you continue in the book of Numbers, it does the same thing, just a constant. And then when you get into the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is writing as he wrote all five of the books of the first books of the Bible. He's telling it from a first-person point of view. He say, we did this, and we did that, and the Lord spoke to me. So he keeps on doing it uh, constantly, three books of the Old Testament at least, and probably some before that. But the point is, when we come to chapter 3, uh, he is now on the backside of the desert, which we believe is uh, the schooling location for God to do a work in his life. He had spent those 40 years in the palace of of Pharaoh, and uh, he tried to do a deliverance of uh, Israel by killing off an Egyptian, and the Lord obviously was displeased with that, and uh, allowed the fear that the Pharaoh would have put upon him to cause him to flee to Midian. And when he gets to Midian, you know the story, he met uh, uh, some young ladies at a well where they were taking care of their father's flock, and he helped protect them when uh, they in the past had had difficulty getting the water and making sure that their livestock was okay. And uh, Moses was there and evidently acted like a gentleman and took care of them, gave them safety, and they left, went to their father, and their father said, well, did, did you bring him home for lunch? Did you, uh, did you invite him to our home? And uh, evidently they had not, and so somehow, some way, they got a connection to him. He comes home for lunch, and the next thing you know in the story, he's married to one of the daughters. The obvious point is this uh, chapter 3 covers a lot of ground in a very quick time, and what you have to understand is by the time you read chapter 3 in the verse 1, 2, or 3 of the chapter, he's already been there 40 years. He's getting ready to leave there, and he spent 40 years there, the Bible confirms. And so consequently, he's 40 years in the palace, and now already when you come to chapter 3, he's lived 40 years back here in this place, and he's getting ready to be sent back to Egypt. So there's some little details that um, I mentioned to you that I think we ought to make sure we take note of because uh, anything that's in the Scriptures, we ought not look over too quickly. For instance, in chapter 3, verse 1, Now Moses kept the flock of Jethro. Uh, and by the way, that name Jethro is also interchangeable with the name Ruel. 
R-E-U-E-L, and why they go back and forth on the name, I, I'm, I'm not sure that there is a reason, but indeed it's not given in Scripture. And he is the father-in-law, and he is also the priest of uh, Midian, and um, he led, that's Moses, he led the flock to the backside of the desert and came to the mountain of God, even to Horeb. And uh, what's interesting about that in talking about the mountain of God, uh, this will show up again. Let me show you from where you are in chapter 3, verse uh, 1. Look over to chapter 3 and verse 12. Chapter 3 of Exodus and verse 12. It says, And he said, Certainly I will be with thee, that's the Lord speaking, and this shall be a token unto thee that I have sent thee when thou shalt... Thou hast brought forth the people out of Egypt. Ye shall serve God upon this mountain. So he's talking about the mountain of God, which is in chapter 3, verse 1, called Horeb. But uh, I want you to see that it's also one of the other main mountains uh, which Moses has to do. For instance, look, if you would, from chapter 3 of Exodus. Look over to chapter 24. Look at Exodus chapter number 24. In Exodus chapter 24, and look uh, all down to about verse 13. Exodus 24 and verse number 13. Exodus 24, 13 says, And Moses rose up and his minister Joshua, and Moses went up into the mount of God. Same place that he was there in Exodus chapter 3. And he said unto the elders, You tarry here, and below, and behold... Aaron and her are with you. If any man have any matters to do, let him come unto them. So Moses and Joshua go up the mount. Moses goes even further, and he gives Aaron and her the responsibility of being in charge of the Israelites while he's gone. Verse 15, And Moses went up into the mount, and a cloud covered the mount, and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai. So this mount of God, and the mount of God that's spoken of in chapter 3, verse 1, which is called Horeb, is Mount Sinai. And these are the names, as you go through the Old Testament, you can see them line up. You know, you'll, he'll refer to Horeb, and he's actually talking about Sinai. And it seems, uh, uh, to me at least, in reading the text in the Old Testament, as we have in the last few weeks, that any time it was an official kind of thing, it was Sinai. When it was just oh, a common kind of connection to the mount, it was just called the Mount of God or Horeb. But when it was something significant happened, they called it Sinai. Here's a case in point. This is a, 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 one, of, one of the amazing times when Moses went up, verse 15, unto the mount, and a cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days. And the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud, and verse 17, And the sight of the glory of the Lord was like devouring fire on the top of the mount in the eyes of the children of Israel. And Moses went into the midst of the cloud and got him up into the mount. And Moses was in the mount forty days and forty nights. One of the amazing stories of the Old Testament, how that the Lord called him up and speaks to him during this uh, forty days and forty nights on the mount. And interestingly, when uh, the um, Israelites who were down below look up on the mount, all they see is this big fiery thing. I mean, this mountain is on fire at the top, and that's where Moses is. 
Moses is in the midst of that crazy thing. And so they're looking and they're amazed. They're sort of taken aback by it. But Moses is up there evidently having a pretty good time of fellowship with the Lord. And um, he doesn't eat anything. There's no sign that he ate anything, nothing to drink. Forty days and forty nights. We have no record of anything fed or watered him. And unless he was just sustained by the miraculous means of God's goodness. Whatever the case is, it's the same mount. It fulfills what chapter 3 of Exodus says when he said, You'll come back and there'll be a day when you will serve me on this mountain. That's the day he's talking about. It would be Exodus chapter 3, verse 12, being fulfilled by the date there in the book of Exodus chapter 24. That's just a small matter, but it is an important matter because some of the liberals question the whole idea about the mountain and what it is and what it's about and so forth. Notice something, if you would, in uh, verses 2 and 3 then. In verse 2 it says, The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush burned with fire, and the bush was not consumed. And verse 3 says, And Moses said, I will now turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. Well, it's a rather an interesting uh, way that it's, uh, it's put there. And it's the kind of thing that um, what's obvious and conspicuous is that the Lord speaks to him out of the bush. Well, uh, the thing about that is that um, the Lord has this uh, uh, way about him of always seemingly to show up in some kind of fire. And um, I don't. I know that we were taught in school that fire is always a symbol in the Old Testament of God's presence. So when you come to the New Testament, there is occasion where the reference of fire, they believe, was to indicate that God was nearby or God was involved in whatever was taking place and where the reference comes from. The point made about that is that uh, in the Old Testament, that fire was considered always a matter of sacredness. And uh, you have all kinds of reaction to it. Let me show you one of them, and it turns out to be one of my uh, my favorite stories of the whole of the Bible. Look, if you would, in the book of Daniel. Look at Daniel chapter number 3. Daniel chapter 3, and uh, ever since I was a, a kid, this is my favorite story in the Old Testament of the great work God has done in, in a miraculous way. In chapter 3 of Daniel, and verse number 19, Chapter 3 of Daniel, verse 19, Then was Nebuchadnezzar full of fury, and the form of his visage was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. By the way, just throw this in for no cost. But uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are the Babylonian names for Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And uh, that's important because uh, nobody likes to be called a worldly name. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is a worldly name. It's a Babylonian name. And some of them believe that uh, the folks who study the words and etymology believe that they had some significance of their gods they worshipped that were idols. So the fact is that they were given those names while they were there, and yet their names uh, in a Jewish context was Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And uh, you should have no name, no problem remembering them if you'll just remember this one truth. Jewish people don't eat ham because it was one of the cursed things or one of the dietary laws that said they could not and should not eat swine. It was really talking about the hoof issue, but it boils down that swine was a no-no. And to this day, to my knowledge, I don't know of any Jewish person who will sit down to any pork meal 
they might do if it was kosher, that is if a Jew, uh, a uh, Jewish priest or a rabbi came in and prayed over it and sprinkled some holy water on it, he might eat it. But even then, I'm not sure he would because if he was an, a, one who adhered to the Old Testament dietary laws, he wouldn't. But the point about that is you can remember these guys' name by H-A-M, Ham, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. So the next time people talk about those guys and they say Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, you can say, I don't think those guys would appreciate you calling them by those worldly, godless names. I think they'd rather be called what their parents named them, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. So in this passage of Scripture, it says that these guys have already upset Nebuchadnezzar. He is furious. Therefore he spake and commanded that they should heat the furnace, one, seven times more than it was wont to be heated. He commanded the most mighty men that were in his army to bind Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael and to cast them into the burning fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats and hosen and their hats and other garments and were cast into the midst of the burning fiery furnace. When you read anything about the Egyptians and the Babylonians and so forth, when they put anybody in fire, they almost always wrapped them in clothing so it'd be like a human torch. You know, you get the, the clothing on fire and uh, my, it would be awful. But interesting in this story, they did the same thing. They wrapped them in that in verse 21. In verse 22, therefore, because the king's commandments were urgent and the furnace exceeding hot, the flame of the fire, fire slew or killed those men that took up Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And verse 23, and these three men, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, fell down bound in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar, the king, was astonished. And he rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, advisors, Do did we not, or did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? And they answered and said unto the king, True, O king, verse 25. King Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Nebuchadnezzar said, Lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they have no hurt, and the form of the fourth, the form of the fourth, is like the Son of God. I don't think there's any sweeter words in the whole of the Bible than verse number 25. Didn't we throw three men in there? Then how come there's four men in there and they're loose? That means their clothes and the ropes and everything that held those garments on them are all burnt off. They're loose. They're free. And not only that, but they're walking around. And not only that, but they show no hurt. They don't, they are, they're not showing any signs or symptoms of first degree, second degree, or third degree burns. They have just absolutely no hurt. And one of these people in there has the appearance of the Son of God. May I say to you that uh, when I was a kid and I heard that story, I wept. 
And I didn't know I didn't know all the ramifications of it. I didn't understand all the great and mighty works of God. I just was overwhelmed that Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael did not die in this fire. And yet the strongest men that Nebuchadnezzar had in his army, he used to throw them into that furnace. And the fact of the matter is, they died at the entrance. But somehow, some way, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael went inside. And in getting inside the fire, they evidently, when they were thrown in there, they says they were bound in the midst of the fire. Some believe that that carries the idea that they were thrown down inside the fire furnace, meaning that they were pushed in and they fell because they were tied up. And that's why the king makes the point that I see four men loose. And I not only see four men loose, I see four men walking. And I not only see four men loose and four men walking in the midst of the fire, I also see that there is no hurt to them. They're not hurt, they're not injured at all. And one of these men gives the form of the Son of God. Um, I say to you, I don't know of any more exciting story in all of the Bible than that story. And what makes it so exciting is that God had three faithful servants who he did not abandon. He didn't say to these guys, now you made your bed, now you sleep in it. He didn't say that. Here are guys who took their stand on what we would believe would be a biblical basis, refusing to bow to the image of the Nebuchadnezzar and refusing to bow when they would do their instrumental playing. It was to honor the image and the, the, the Nebuchadnezzar and his ego and so forth. They didn't bend and they did not bow. And for that, they were cast into this furnace. It was heated, remember, seven times hotter than it is normally used to, to disintegrate whatever they threw in it. And I say to you then, for the Lord to show up is like the guest of honor for these three men. And I don't know that they even realized it. I, I don't know how you would uh, uh, be burning in a fiery furnace and the Son of God show up and walk around with you and... Uh, he may have never said a word. He may have not been so visible to them. But the Lord made himself visible to Nebuchadnezzar who was looking. And say, there's one of these guys who has the form of the Son of God. And it's almost as if he would say, I don't understand this. These guys are alive. They're well. They're walking. They're loose. They show no pain, no hurt. Their God has come down to be with them. That's why they used to say, in fact, uh, the old timers would you may God be with you. When they'd leave somebody, and especially someone who was in a moment of pain and discomfort or sorrow, my father, my grandfather, I can remember them leaving and say, may God be with you. And they were saying, you know, you're in a, you're in a very difficult set of circumstances, and may the Lord make himself real to you. Oh, it's not so much that you say, oh yes, I, I saw him standing right beside of me. That's not the issue. The issue is not whether you saw him, not whether you'll go tell people you saw him. It's the issue that he was there to comfort you. And you would say, I, I sensed 
the comfort of the Lord to this valley. I, I got that. The Lord gave that. Well, you may have not seen it, but the people around you said, hey, I'm telling you, the Lord was in this. Nebuchadnezzar is the one who gives testimony to this. Oh, by the way, he was a skeptic. He had doubts that this God they worshipped was such a good and great and mighty guy. But boy, he's a believer now. He believes that one of these guys was the Son of God who had come down to be with his servants who faithfully took a stand for him and against the things that were evil. The choir sings a song, uh, and uh, the song is written by uh, uh, Janine Dryley, and she wrote the words and the music. It's one of uh, one of my favorite. I have several favorite songs that the choir sings. This is one of my favorite. It's entitled Walking Through the Flames. She writes, Many years ago, in time of woe, three young men faced a bitter test. For the king decreed they should not be freed, but instead he had them bound fast. Because they would not bow the knee except to God on high into the flames with great disdain these men were thrown to die but who would have thought the Course says who would have thought that the flames would set them free and who would have thought and who would have thought that they gained the victory when God our lot or with when with God our lot we cast, we'll have more than we could ask. We will go walking through the flames with the Son of God. Verse two says, When this evil king had performed this thing, he sat down upon his throne, but when he took yet a second look, he cried out with astonished tone, Did we not cast into the fire a group that numbered three? Now they're walking round as though unbound, and the fourth is like deity. Who would have thought? Who would have thought that the flames would set them free? And who would have thought and who would have thought that they would gain the victory when with God our lot we cast? We'll have more than we could ask. We'll go walking through the flames with the Son of God. Page 5 says, God has made it known to his very own tribulation they must bear. For this world is not any friend of God, in his cross we have a share. But when the hour of trial comes and fire is all around, we will find the place we're walking on is really holy ground. Then let it be known, then let it be known that the flames will set us free and let it be known, let it be known, we shall gain the victory. When with God our lot we cast, we'll have more than we could ask. We'll go walking through the flames with the Son of God. With the Son of God, 
when with God our lot we cast, we'll have more than we could ask. We'll go walking, 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 walking through the flames with the Son of God. I think it's a great song, sets forth the great truth that, um, you know, these fellows who were cast into the fiery furnace, I doubt that you or I will ever have that experience. But sometimes you'll walk through some tribulation and times of trials and difficulty and sorrow, and you may think you're in the midst of the fiery furnace. What's important to note also is that the Israelites believed they were in a fiery furnace. Let me show you some verses in the, in the, that the Bible sets forth. For instance, look at uh, Deuteronomy chapter 4. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, look down to verse number 20. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the law. In chapter 4 and down at verse number 20, the Bible says, and uh, he's warning from verse 15, he's... Um, He's uh, warning them about idolatry. And so in verse 20, he said, The Lord the Lord hath taken you and brought you forth out of the iron furnace, even, even out of Egypt, to be unto him a people of inheritance as you are this day. Talking about those furnaces, those furnaces were just like the ones in Babylon. They were furnaces that were used to burn up uh, uh, many things and anything that the uh, folks who fueled them needed to get rid of. And um, somebody said when Hitler had the camps at Auschwitz, he got his idea from the Egyptians and their fiery furnaces along with the Babylonians. He found out that you could put people in them. And you could burn them like we have what's called cremation. That's a nice way of putting burnt to nothing. And it really cares the idea. You can burn a body till there's nothing left in it. There's even questions whether or not if you find the ashes of a person who's been burnt that you could prove any type of DNA. It's almost like the best way in the world. Just get rid of a person. It's as if they evaporate. They do not exist anymore and there's no way to trace them. Nothing whatsoever. Everything's gone to nothing. That's why you can take a, a rather large person and you can take them to a cremation and when they've died and you put them into a cre- crematorium and then, then they clean that thing out so they try to get all the ashes from each particular case and make sure you don't get mixed with anybody else which I'm a skeptic of, but the point is this, that's what they say. And then they take those ashes and they put them in an urn. And I don't know how many services I've been at, but we had a member of this church years ago that uh, the lady died and she wanted to be cremated. And uh, they asked me then if I'd come and do the service. So I ran down there one morning and, and there was a few people gathered around the gravesite here at, uh, at the um, what is this down over the hill, whatever this is over the hill, this cemetery. I went down there, and sure enough, there was this one little spot in this uh, grave marker and this uh, bronze covering to it, and the urn was sitting on the top of that thing. And uh, at one point, they opened the top of it, and someone verifies that from a human eye, this is the ashes of this loved one. They verified it, put this cap back on it, screwed it down, and sealed it. Then they take that thing and they turn it upside down and put it into that concrete slab that has this bronze top to it. So right down here in the cemetery, there's a whole bunch of people who 
remains of cremation are in their headstones turned upside down. And if you could break that seal and bring that thing out and take off the top and open it up, it would be the powder of those people. Well, it's interesting. You can take a person who weighs a few hundred pounds and you can reduce them to the ashes that you can put in a less than a one quart. That just doesn't seem possible. But that's what the Egyptians and the Babylonians did, but they didn't do it out of respect for the body. And they didn't do it out of respect for plagues and things like that that the body might carry as any diseases. They did it most often as punishment. And so the thing about it is, in, in the case with the Egyptians, they had the iron furnaces just like these other folks did. There are several verses about that, and you can see them scattered throughout the, the whole of the Bible. But let me show you one, and we'll be drawing this to a conclusion. Look, if you would, from where you are in Deuteronomy. Look to Isaiah chapter 63, and I'll leave you with this because this is a high point and a good one. And I have a lot more I need to say, but I can't do it tonight. Look, if you would, at chapter 63 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 63, and look down to verse number 7. Isaiah 63 and ver- verse number 7. It speaks about, and in the context, it speaks about Israel. And it says in verse 7, I will mention the loving kindness or kindnesses of the Lord, Jehovah God, and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us, and the great goodness toward the house of Israel which he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. And verse 8, For he said, Surely they are my people, children that will not lie. So he was their Savior. And in verse number 9, watch carefully, In all their affliction he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them and his love in his love and in his pity he redeemed them and he bare them and carried them all the days of old I won't ruin your evening by reading verse 10 but the sad thing is they did rebel after all of this, the loving kindnesses of the Lord and showing the mercy and all the kind and gracious things that he did and what became their Savior in verse number 9 is especially important because it is the Lord identifies with his people and Israel is the illustration of the text. And what's happened is uh, in this, I think there's an illustration about the Lord showing up and speaking out of the burning bush. I don't think it's accidental that he picked that illustration. We'll get there next week, and I hope you'll be with us. If you'll stand with me, please, we'll bow in a word of prayer. And I hope this week that when you face some of the challenges that you will, and it's inevitable we'll all have some, I'll be praying that the Lord will give you a sense of his presence right in the midst of it. And I hope that if you feel like you're walking through the flames, I hope that you'll remember Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. And you'll recognize that it's a perfect opportunity for the Lord to show himself strong in your behalf. I hope you'll think about it. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your great goodness and your great mercy and the great pity that you've both shown to Israel and you've shown to all of us who were lost sinners and the graciousness of you sending your only begotten Son into this world to die for our sins. What a great act of love and mercy. And Father, I pray that you'll help us like Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael 
to take our stand for you and not bend or bow or back out of the deal. Help us to stand ground on our faith, our confidence, our love, and our loyalty to the Lord Jesus Christ. And no matter what it costs us, I pray that we would understand that these three men stood on the principle that they had been taught and came from you. And Father, in doing so, you showed faithfulness to these men that you were there with them. And you saw them through this exceedingly unbelievable experience that turned out to be one of the great miracles of the Old Testament. The Old Testament and all of those miracles that happened, this may rank as the greatest. Where three men are thrown into a fiery furnace and uh, they're already bound up in their coats and their hosiery and their hats and all of that to help them burn quicker. And yet all of that fell off of them and they were free. They were loose. And they were not hurt. And they were walking around and you showed up. They may have not known it except that they knew they were miraculously being cared for. But the people outside noticed, and especially King Nebuchadnezzar. Father, I want to thank you that for the many times you've showed up in our lives as a Bible-believing people. And we may have not been able to see you with a few of the physical eye and the human eye, but by the eye of faith, we knew we got through something that was impossible to have gotten through apart from your help. You were there. You didn't leave any footprints, and you didn't leave any fingerprints, and you didn't do anything to make a show. Because you were not there to make a show. You were there to show your people that you cared and you knew what they were going through. So tonight, I hope you and pray that you will help us all to take confidence in the fact that we're not alone. You promised, I'll never leave thee nor forsake thee. I believe that means even if we walk through a fiery furnace or a valley of the shadow of death, you'll be right there. And you even made a promise. You made it in Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. I will fear no evil. For thou art with me. May we really rest in that and believe that with all of our heart and the journey here will be a lot easier I thank you for your great goodness that you've expressed to all of us here over the years and I pray you'll guide and direct us this week and as we face settings and circumstances that may be challenging help us to look for you in the details of what's going on help us not to be fearful and help us not to fret and murmur but help us to look for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.